As a child, I always thought about some miracles. Maybe some miracles will happen to me and that, uh, after all, they won't kill me. But I knew that they have killed my best friend, the son of my mother's uh, friend, Manya, a boy who was found in a hiding place and taken down to the courtyard of the prison. And uh, a policeman has put uh, him a bullet in the head. I knew that. I knew that. So I knew that when a, when a boy like myself was found by the Germans, this could happen to him. You're listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. I'm Eleanor Risa. Chapter 7, Liquidation. This episode is set in the fall of 1943 up to the spring of 1944. It begins with the liquidation of the Vilna ghetto. You'll hear the voices of Henny Dermashkin Gurko, Sheila Zvani, and Yitzchak Dugim. We continue with Samuel Bach. The atmosphere in the ghetto was terrible. It was clear that the Russians started to advance. It was clear that the Germans were going to do something. They were saying that uh, the Germans prepare many trains on the station, and the trains are going to take away the people from Vilna. They were speaking that uh, some other ghettos have been eliminated and liquidated and there were rumors about what was going on in the ghetto of Warsaw and so on. So I think that uh, it was quite clear, people were prepared and the atmosphere there was, 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 was very black, very black. Early the morning they announced that the ghetto is going to Rosa. Rosa was a place where they, you know, liquidate, where they put, took out all people and they put them in a, you know, like segregate, who on right, who on left, who do, now, uh, to shot and who to leave to the camps, whatever. Rosa was an area of Vilna, very quiet, um, hilly, and uh, they brought us to this hill, to this valley, and we saw some people were being hung. And that we thought that we'd all be hung one by one. We became so hysterical, so unbelievably hysterical, that we said, let us beg for, for shots and not to be hung. And uh, turns out that they were caught running away to the partisans, and they were hung. Those two people, a girl and a, and a boy. And uh, we stayed there overnight, no food, crying of children, carrying guns. The conditions were terrible outdoors, naturally, in this valley. From the, from the hill we were looking down, there were so many of us. 
And then the next day, they said, let's go up. It's going to be a selection. Selection, of course, meant death or life. And they brought us up the hill, and they said, those that cannot work will go to the left. And we tried to make my mother look younger. We tried to put rouge on her and make her look, you know, so that maybe she'll pass as a younger person. And when the selection started, we went all the way up the hill, and it was left and right. My brother was taken away right away, and my mother. And I survived with my sister. They brought us to trains because nearby were railroad tracks with trains. Right, they put us in those trains. These were trains for cattle, no windows. We were pushed in savagely into those trains. And one part of our life was gone, the ghetto life was no more, which was bad enough, but worse was coming on. When the Vilna ghetto was liquidated, thousands of Jews were sent to their deaths or to forced labor camps. Others escaped to the forest as partisans. Very few managed to hide. We had a meeting about what to do, go or stay. We saw that everyone was coming out of their houses. I said that we should stay in the ghetto. If we die, we die together. So we stayed. Everyone went into our hiding place, a small room with no windows. There were 24 of us, including my friend and his family. Outside, we heard screaming and people being caught. This early morning, my brother took us, me, and my mother, my father, my mother, my brother, and this cousin, and my aunt with the two children, and other people. And we went to this sewer. They made like a hole through a store, and you had to climb through houses to go to the hole. Then we went through the hole to the sewers, what we could take on ourselves and a little package. And we had to walk to the place, to the sewers, to hide there. The place where we were, there were 18 people there. We were sitting like, like the sardines. At night, it was quiet. We could open the door and get some air. After a few days, groups started to come from the city and throw everything from inside the houses out the windows. So we knew that soon someone would come and find us. What could we do? Under our roof, there was a crawl space. I closed up the entrance with boards and we all went in. We brought blankets and took everything up under the beams. We were on the fourth floor, and we could see what was happening outside, down below. We made their electricity in the sewer. 
We made like a little toilet. And they made like a stove. But we didn't have anything from what to eat. And you couldn't talk because right here, the next door, the Polish people went for their potatoes. They keep their and the potatoes. So you couldn't even say a word. People were there terrible, without food, without nothing. You could get crazy even to see there. There we were. We had no food. It started to snow. My friend and I started going out at night to search for food. In one house, we'd find five kilos of flour. I found a faucet in a bathroom in the courtyard and took water from it. We would mix half a cup of flour with water, divided among everyone. At first, we had some sugar to add for the kids. That was our food. When it started to snow, it became a problem because you'd leave footprints. A Polish man that was working as a janitor, he took us once in a while a bread, but very little under the coat he saved us. He came to a hole, and this how he pushed the bread to the hole, a little, little, little bread. And he said to us, whatever happened to me, I'm going with you. But my family shouldn't know about nothing. A lot of gentle people, they took the, you know, the money and they gave out the people. He was religious. And because he was religious, he didn't give us out. He was afraid God will uh, punish him. At night, the soldiers, the Gestapo, left the ghetto. I would go out. There were other people out sneaking around, but every few days there were fewer. People were caught. Eventually, we were the only ones left. After a month, guards started entering the houses. They'd lift up floorboards and find that there were Jews hiding in the basement. One time, my, we got so hungry, we got so tired that my brother took my mother and he, in the middle of the night, he took her out to the source, took an hour and a half to go there, and he put her out to the street, and she went out to the house where we used to live to our neighbors because we lived by them things like a sewing machine, like clothes, whatever, you know, in case. My mother came to this good neighbors, our good friends, to get something, we should have a piece of bread. So they said to her, if when you're gonna live through the war, then we're gonna give you. Now we don't give you nothing. One day, the guard came into our place. My friend and I rushed out alone. We gave him a coat. He brought us bread and onions. He asked, it's really just the two of you? We said, yes. They caught everyone else already. Then he disappeared. 
One time, the, the gentle, this uh, man, he came to us, he says, look, you have to leave because people were hiding in another place, Ozendesus, and somebody talked. There were 23 people, they took everybody and they shot them together. So he got afraid, he said, you must go out. So we went all out, we couldn't even walk. And some pipes, they were high, some pipes, they were low. Some pipes, you have to walk on the, on the floor, like this clock. The smell, three times a day, that came from the sewers, the smell could eat you up. And, and so my brother took my father on the bag and he carried him. He wasn't so sick, but he already didn't have the strength. He couldn't walk. And we went to the water. And a place we found near the water, it was water, but not high yet. And then start a big storm. So we says, here we're gonna drown already. But somehow on our log, the water stopped. And we stayed there a couple of days without food, without nothing. And then we say, where we gonna go? Maybe he's gonna close again the hole. And he wouldn't let us in anymore. And we came back and we, found, and we saw the hole was open. Oh, we said, thank God that we can go back. Two more months passed with us living that way. One morning, we looked down into the courtyard and saw soldiers coming with the Polish guard. They found us and made us come down. A truck came. They beat us and told us to get in. We knew the truck meant Ponari. We refused to get in until my younger sister got in first. She told us to show them we were not afraid of death. They took us to the Gestapo. At the Gestapo, they put us in the cellar, room 21. We were all together, women, children, everyone. After a few hours, they opened the door, came in, and forcibly took out the women and children. You can't be together, they said. You have to be separate. They took all the women and children. Only the men were left. My father got sick. He couldn't stand it anymore. The hunger, and he didn't have what to smoke. He got sick, and after three days, he died there. And we had to bury him and left him in the sous. At this time, Samuel and his parents were in Hakape, the forced labor camp inside Vilna. This working camp was organized in a way in which the Germans have succeeded to bring every, every Jew who was in that place into a state in which he was a guardian of the others, so that the others would not escape. Because we had all to wear metal medals here with our number on it. And every morning, men, women, children, they were controlling the numbers. We had to stand according to the numbers. Now, if one number was missing, five people before that number, five people after that number were taken away and shot. 
So now there was a situation where everybody was watching everybody. Because if you escaped, I was going to pay for it. This was this diabolic br brutalization of the people. But then in the camp, the children from, I think, less than 12 or so were not supposed to work. And we were free and we were walking around in the, on the grounds of the, of the camp. And I had some very good friends. And uh, we had a lot of snow always and we used to play with the snow. The important thing was not to be near where the soldiers were. Children were quite left to themselves. The parents were working day and night. And rumors again arrived that the Germans have, are having a very hard time on their fronts, that they are trying to eliminate now not only the camps of the few remaining Jews, but they were trying to eliminate the traces of the elimination of the Jews. We heard of those commandos that were taken to Ponari that had to dig out corpses and burn them. We heard of those things. And I knew of those things. <laughs> They took us, the men, to Ponari for work. There were pits that the Russians had dug for underground fuel storage. We lived in one that was five, six meters deep, 30 meters wide. It had stone walls, and the Jews who had worked there before built a roof with boards and rooms inside. It had a kitchen, a storeroom, and a bunk room. We had to cut trees and drag the logs. We had to gather everything. My father also worked, but he wasn't young, and it was hard. I took the logs on my back so that I had most of the weight. One day, we stood in a line. A Gestapo official from outside Vilna came and started talking, lecturing about the work we had to do that the work that was done was a big mess. Pigs did it, and we have to get rid of it. He said that whoever worked and finished the job well could earn the right to go to Berlin and work in his real profession, but whoever starts any nonsense, that's the end of his life. They put chains on our legs. They told me since I was an electrician, I had to install electricity at the pits. I didn't know anything about the rest of the work the group was doing. My father was with the group, my brother-in-law too. They went to the first pit. They dug into the ground and found dead bodies. They started screaming. The Germans beat them. In the evening, many came back with injuries from the beating. This went on for three days and then they got used to that kind of work. When I wasn't working on electrical projects, I worked with the group that was disposing of the bodies. We were forbidden to use the word dead or killed. They made us call them figuren, figures.
My job was to pick up the dead with an iron rod. Then a group would dig away the dirt, and then take out the figures and lay them out on boards. Then the so-called dentist would come, this was my brother-in-law, and pull out the gold teeth. Then two people would carry the bodies away to the areas we had cleared and make pyres for burning. There, other people would arrange the bodies. They had a system, how to put the boards, how to put the bodies. And they kept building until there were three or four thousand dead bodies in one pyre. They poured on gasoline and it burned for several days. The first pit we dug into was the largest. There were 24,000 bodies in it. At the top, there were whole bodies, and as you went down, the bodies had deteriorated and become compressed. The lowest layer, with time, had nearly decomposed. It was only five centimeters thick. There we found people from before the ghetto, those that the snatchers had caught. How did we know? There was a bag with the soap and towel next to each one. So we knew that this was from before the ghetto, when people who were snatched were told to bring soap and a towel. So we were passing through every period. We could tell what time period the people were from. A German was always there with a book, and in the book he had a list, how many dead in each pit. That's how we knew, 12,000, 7,000, how many bodies. After the bodies were burned, there were still parts left. There were people who had to cut them into pieces. Every trace had to be destroyed. What should we do? We knew they wouldn't let anyone out of this place alive, even the guards. There was one incident that I saw myself. A German soldier wandered in from the road. He said he was looking for water. They caught him and they killed him. I saw it. I came out of the pit and took his shoes. After a month or so, I was standing at the gate and I saw a truck arrive with more people, prisoners. Some were Jews, some were Soviets. They brought them from Lukishki prison. The Gestapo officer lined them up in a row and barked, Profession! Teachers, engineers, doctors, they put to the side. You don't belong here, you need different work. They took them into the forest and killed them. The rest stayed and worked with us. Together, we were 80 people. There was a group that went in a truck after work from Panari to the Gestapo. They crossed paths with a truck carrying women and children. The Gestapo officer Knapp was there and took an automatic rifle. He came back to Panari with the women. This is how I know he killed the women and children. This is how I know that was his job. I remember one night, was a a terrible tension because there were many trucks around the camp and nobody knew what was going to happen. We hardly slept that night. And then the next morning, very early, the trucks came into the camp and there was shouting. There was shouting in German. All women and children 
should come out. At a certain point, my mother took my hand and we started to walk. In the corridor of that building, towards the door that had to lead us out. And when we were in that very door, a friend of my mother grabbed her by the arm and shouted to her, Mitya, are you crazy? Where do you go? She grabbed her by force. I came along and there was a door that opened all of a sudden and she brought us in and in that little room was her daughter and another child or two. And she told me to be under the bed. Meanwhile, outside, I understood that they were putting all sorts of garbage in front of, of that door. Now, this is the window of, 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 of this room, which was the first floor, where a, on the side where all the women and the children were gathering. One truck, I think, left with children, with women with their children. But after that, I think the Germans realized there was not enough place for the women. They started to shout, only the children. And there started something terrible. There was some screaming and some yelling and, and some shooting. There were, there were a few women that really attacked the soldiers, shouting into their faces, murderers. and. And they were shot on the spot. And the children were crying. I mean, it was really terrible. I'm sorry. Well, all this was over after two hours. And there I was left in this room with uh, these other two children and three children and the sound of the crying people in the corridors was just unbelievable. And my parents were very much afraid that I might be seen because they were, they were parents who became absolutely mad, absolutely crazy. To see another child for them, they didn't know how they would behave. So they hid me under a bed with some blankets on me and so on. I was not to appear, I was not to exist. Now since a number of women were taken out from their camp, and since a number of women were killed and buried on the premises of the camp, my mother thought that it was a wonderful occasion for her to try to escape and to take me out from the camp. So at night, my father succeeded to bribe uh, one of the, of the German uh, Wehrmacht uh, guardians. And, um, and she succeeded to get out from, from the camp. 
she was not any more a danger to anybody leaving the camp because the Germans didn't know how many women left nor how many women were buried. And she went again to the aunt. Now the next day, the maid of the aunt came to the camp and started to walk nearby the uh, barbed wire fence wearing my mother's handkerchief. People came to my father to tell him, look, there is most probably a sign from your wife. He understood that now the question was to get me out from the camp. We started to talk what to do, how to escape. Every night they pulled up the ladder and we were stuck in the pit, five or six meters deep with stone walls, a fence, mines, another fence and guards around it. During the day also, while we worked, guards surrounded us. We had all kinds of ideas. We agreed on digging a tunnel. I spotted a place outside the fence I thought would be the best to get out. It was about 30 meters from the pit. We made a plan. First, we had to get past the foundation, so we had to dig at least three meters down. There was a storeroom with bread and other food. We made a double wall and a doorway behind it. From there, we started to dig. Before it became dark, he came with a sack, like those used for the cubes of wood. He put me in the sack, took me on his shoulder, and he succeeded to join the line of the workmen that were carrying those sacks to be put on some trucks that were always waiting there. And he went with me in the sack through the whole camp with the others and brought me to a room where there were thousands of those sacks piled up. Two of his friends worked in that place where they were putting the sacks on the trucks. And um, they have made in a way that they started as if to fight at a certain corner of that place, calling the attention of all the Germans that were around. At that very moment, the friend of, 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 of my father who was in the room grabbed me with the sack and threw me out from this window. It was not very high. The moment I landed on the ground, I felt a hand. This was the maid of my uh, aunt that took my hand and she told me only, now we work very slowly. And very slowly we started to walk along the barbed wire fence as if it was a Polish woman with a child that were just making a promenade. And there we arrived to the house of the aunt. When my mother saw me, she could not believe her eyes. She never thought she'll make it. This was also the last time I've seen my father. When we started digging the tunnel, at the beginning it was 10 people. But then we brought in more, 
15, 20 people. The tunnel was about 60 centimeters wide and 70 tall. The dirt was actually sand. You could even dig by hand, but it caved in easily. There were two people who cut trees for our kitchen. We gave them measurements and they brought wood to fit. We dug two meters. We had started to dig without accounting for where to put the dirt. We spread sand on the floor. The floor of our place got to be 10 centimeters higher. What could we do with the sand? We told the Germans it was cold and we wanted to insulate the walls of the rooms. So we did, and we put sand behind the walls. The toilet was outside. You'd sit over a hole. We'd put sand in our pockets, and when we were sitting over the hole, we'd throw sand in. When you opened the door of the kitchen, sand came out. Sand was in the coffee and in the food. We knew why, but the rest of the group didn't. It was very difficult to be in the camp. It was very difficult to be outside because there would be a real danger to, to, to my mother's sound. What can be done with us? Where can she put us? She could not hide us in, a, in her house. So we spent hidden in a closet for one day in her house and she meanwhile went around in town to look if she could find some place for us. And she came and said, look, I think I found a place. Now, I found a woman that for quite a lot of money is ready to give you lodgings. We um, came to a place where an old lady opened the door and uh, she said, oh, she said, this is something I've already done before. I have hidden here people, only they did not like very much this place. They went away. So now you can stay here. She said, only I'm afraid that the child uh, is not afraid of rats. And mainly he does not scream when they bite him, because if you tell me that this child is going to scream when the rats bite him, then he cannot stay here. And there we left. After four or five meters, there was no air. A candle wouldn't light. At 10 meters, I could only stay in there for 15 minutes, and I was healthy. My mother took me out, and we went to a towards the town, we were standing on a bridge, and down the water was, it was in a period of the year in which the ice melts and the water was really like a tempest whirling underneath. And um, we stood there and I did not understand why, what was my mother's intention. A month passed and we dug 20 meters. 20 people were working on the tunnel in shifts. Eventually we came to dirt that was not sand. We found roots. We knew that we only had about a meter left. We were almost there. We started planning our escape. And then we went towards the place where we were hiding in the monastery. It was unbelievable. But one of the nuns that took care of us and who knew the secret of our being in the monastery, opened the door. There was a number of, I don't know, eight or ten people who were hiding in that very place. She went to them and told them, look, there is a woman and a child here, and 
if you don't agree to accept her and to share with her the space that you have and the food that you have and so on, you must know that she is doomed. And they accepted us. And it was for us like a miracle. All of a sudden to be in a place where we could have some food, eat and be and feel protected. The big pits were already done. We were now working in pits that had just a few hundred people, not thousands. We knew it was almost the end of the work and the end of us. Some of the pits had bodies with clothes, and some were without clothes. It depended on the pit and the time period. Sometimes we found watches. The Germans wanted the watches, and they would give them to me to repair instead of going to work. One day, I stayed in the bunker to fix a watch. I finished the watch, came out, I gave it to a German. And I saw, not far away, a pile ready for incineration. I got closer, and I recognized a green blouse. My sister. Then I saw it was my whole family. My mother. I became crazy and threw down my work and ran. The Germans raised their rifles to shoot me, but someone told them I saw my family. They did not say a word. After I recognized my family, I no longer had any desire to escape. I told the group they should go. I would stay behind, take a stone, throw it at the mines, and bring all the Germans down with me. I did not want to live. One of the other men talked with me for a long time. He convinced me to stay alive. The world needs to know what happened here. This episode, you heard from Samuel Bach, Henny Dermashkin Gurko, Sheila Zvani, and Yitzchak Dugim, whose Hebrew testimony is voiced by Arnie Burton. Next up, Chapter 8 Nazi Defeat. This special series about Jewish life in Vilna is written and produced by Nahani Rouse and Eric Marcus. Stephen Naren is the executive producer. Our composer is Leover Zerbin. Our theme music is an arrangement of Vilna Vilna, the 1935 song by A.L. Wolfson and Alexander Olshinetsky. The cellist is Clara Lee Rouse. Our audio mixer is Anne Pope. This podcast is a collaboration between the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale University and YIVO, the Institute for Jewish Research. I'm Eleanor Risa. You've been listening to Remembering Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. <laughs>